HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Welcome to Pizza Quest. I'm Peter Reinhardt, a man on a never-ending search for the perfect pizza. This show is the audio version of the Pizza Talk YouTube series, where I engage in interesting conversations with some of the country's greatest pizza makers and other artisans. Thanks for joining me on this quest. Welcome to Pizza Talk. I'm Peter Reinhardt, and I'm here with Mark Todd, the cheese dude. And so this is going to be a whole different kind of show today because we're going to focus on cheese. Uh, and Mark is the dude. He's going to teach me things that I never knew about cheese because just even in talking with them ahead of time, I realized I know so little about cheese, even though I love cheese. And I'm sure many of you are kind of in the same boat. We all love cheese. And if you're in the pizza world, you know, we we rely on it. And, and I first learned about you, Mark, in an article I saw where you were explaining why certain cheeses are better for pizzas than others, et cetera. And I realized that here's this guy living not that far from where I used to live in, in uh, Sonoma County on the Russian oh. River, uh, who is the dude. And so my first question for you is, how did you become the dude? That's a good question. Um, I uh, lived down in the greater Bay Area doing jobs that I was not too pleased with and uh, decided that I would rather find a good job where I wanted to live rather than live where I had a job. Ah. So my wife and I packed up from Palo Alto and moved up to the Russian River out in the Redwoods. And um, within about a year, I figured out that what I wanted to do was something to do with uh, wine and cheese. I moved here because of the Pinot Noir from the Russian River. Um, and I wanted to do something with cheese. I ran into a guy that did cheese carvings, like for sculptures and photo shoots and such. Um, and so right about in, in the nineties, 91, I ran into him actually in 1990. We met. And, I was, and that's exactly when I was living in Forestville, just up the road from Monte Rio where you are. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That was, uh, he, he was, he was the tasting manager at, uh, Mark West winery. Oh, yes, um, many times. I, this, yeah. well, that was a great time to be in Sonoma County because sure was. the whole yeah. wine thing was exploding and, and yep. Sonoma as sort of the the food, wine, and I mean, it was everything, the agriculture sort of center of the country. Uh, I just felt blessed to have been there at the right time. Well, it uh, um, a lot of people in the world are familiar with Napa Valley, uh, and certainly they have their claims to fame. Um, but I like to think of Napa Valley as um, the commercial center of wine and Sonoma County as the quality center. Um, I, I, know I used to get into fights with people about that. Like, yeah, yeah, Napa's good, but you got to try these wines. And so, and especially when when the Pinot breakthrough happened in uh, along the Russian River, William William and a few wineries like that. All of a sudden, people thought they couldn't grow Pinot, good Pinot Noir, in in the United States, and yep. and it happened. Well, the the first person I worked for in the wine industry was, in my opinion, the first man to produce a Pinot Noir in California that was the the kind and that was robert stemmler in his 1982 pinot wow um that was the first pinot i had tasted coming out of the united states that was burgundy and uh, so I, right. I when i moved to sonoma county i walked right into his tasting room and said 
you need to hire me. I'm going to work for you. And he said, why should I hire you? He said, because I can explain your wines probably better than anybody except you. And I proceeded to describe his 82 Pinot to him. And he just said, okay. You're on. Well, well <laughs> and for those who don't know, you know, a Pinot Noir is the grape that is what Burgundy wine or the wine from Burgundy is based on. So, right. uh, and for a long time, our area where we lived uh, was really great for the, for the, uh, for the other style, for the Cabernet style. And we knew we could do that and we could do Zinfandels, but nobody felt that they could do Burgundy. So suddenly it happened. And uh, yep. uh, and the rest is, as they say, history. So you could have just as easily been the wine dude as the cheese dude. Well, I got into the cheese industry by being the wine guy that worked with Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board uh -huh. in their wine and cheese pairings, their uh, uh, write-ups about that. And then weaseled my way into full-time cheesedom um, through hard work and good luck um, and perseverance. Um, I made it into the industry as a consultant. And uh, I've worked for the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board for 10, 12 years. I worked for United States Dairy Export Council since they started in the 90s. I still work for them. Um, I now work for the California Milk Advisory Board also. Um, I work for all sorts of people around the world, but primarily uh, domestic specialty cheese and domestic um, cheese for food service. I teach chefs about cheese all over the world. So, so much of, of your story is being in the right place at the right time and then yeah. having a passion for, and a, maybe, and a talent for, yes. for it. And, and patience. <laughs> this, it did not happen overnight, believe me. Um, right. But now, now that I've been doing it for... 28 years. Um, it's a blast. I mean, I, I forgot more about cheese than probably a lot of people know. And I don't even really feel like I know that much about it. There's still people that know way more than I do. It's uh, a fathomless subject. It's just like fermentation and bread making and wine making. Yep. And you just, you, it's, it's, it's going down the rabbit hole. You just, you just yes. keep getting deeper and deeper. But um, uh, in a sense, everything that you've learned then is just from being there and being around other talented people. Did you have to do any formal study to become I, an expert in cheese? No, I, I didn't have to. To uh, it, It's this, um, you know, put it in your mouth, read about it, study about it. Um, since learning about cheese, I have taken many courses, uh, Cal Poly's, you know, short course, long course, uh, uh, CDR's courses. I've done a lot of courses in it, but um, most of what I've learned is through doing it, is living it, cooking with it, working with chefs, uh, working at trade shows for 20 years, seeing what worked, what doesn't work. Um, you know, when you're working a trade show that's four days and you're doing 20,000 samples, you get an idea of what works well and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, I remember in, um, in the nineties, I guess it was sort of the late nineties, all of a sudden, uh, the Sonoma County folks who basically, when you live in Sonoma County, you feel like you can grow and make pretty much anything at the highest level. Uh, and all of a sudden this goat cheese thing happened. And yep. there was, I was at the first goat cheese festival. I had my bakery then, uh, Brother Juniper's Bakery, and we were made, oh. we, and we were the bread guys. That's you? That was me, yeah. yeah. No, sh no yeah. kidding. You can say it. Uh, I <laughs> love your, I love your bread. I love that, that stuff. See, I wish we could have connected back then. No we probably kidding. did. Who knows? We probably met at one of those events. I'm sure uh, we did. So all of a sudden, we're seeing like all these little goat cheese uh, uh, stands, you know, and they all showed up at the festival. I think it was... Uh, it was uh, somewhere uh, 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 just near the fairgrounds, but not in the fairgrounds. And and then later on, it was down in down in the Valley of the Moon. And and for a few years, there were these goat cheese festivals. And before you knew it, there was this burgeoning goat cheese thing happening. Um, and then, of course, Wisconsin, as you know, uh, is kind of like what what Sonoma and Napa are for wine tours. There's all these great cheese cheese makers there. Oh wait 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 a minute. Um... Sonoma Napa County uh, uh, cheese tour. Oh with yeah, about fifty-ish cheesemakers to see. Not bad. Yeah, well. and and what you're talking about on the goat cheese that is really uh, there's a, a woman that's very famous in the industry named Laura Chanel. Laura Chanel. Um, she was kind of Laura the Chanel celebrity partner. Celebrity in America. Yeah. Well, she and her partner went to France in the early '70s, and they fell in love with the goat cheeses. And they came back here and said, what do you mean there isn't any goat cheese here? There's none? Nobody makes a goat cheese in America? So they said, oh, okay, well, we'll do it. They went back to France. They studied, came back. 
Uh, and on 10th Street in Santa Rosa, opened up a little place right next to the uh, train tracks originally. Yep. Yeah. And started making goat cheese. And that was the origin of the artisan cheese movement, which now supports right. more than a thousand unique varieties of cheese in America. And they had that and it all started on farm, uh, the goat cheese farm right on the border of Sonoma and Napa. There was that farm that they had that they bought, which is gone. That now gone. Which yeah. Which is gone. Yeah. But uh, and then there was uh, Redwood the Hill, the Redwood Hill goat cheese. That was called the that was the Stornetta. The one Stornetta. you mentioned was the Stornetta. Was the originally a cow Stornetta. milk dairy, yeah. uh, Stornetta Farms. Um, and then you're right. Then uh, 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 Redwood Hill came along, and uh, um, up north Cypress Grove in uh, um, McKinleyville near Eureka, uh, and those were kind of the old guard, the original guard of goat right. cheese. And all of them are now retired and have sold off their companies and, and all driving Teslas and having a good time now. They, they all had an exit strategy. Unlike some of us, they were able to like, you know, uh, use the that to move into retirement. Uh, I remember when Humboldt Fog came out, you know, the, you mentioned uh, uh, Cypress Grove. I think they created the, the, the famous Humboldt yep. Fog goat cheese. And I was at one of those festivals. They debuted that cheese and we went, whoa, this okay. is pretty special. So. And it still is. Well, and I'll tell you, that's, that was one of the very first cheeses from the United States imported in Paris um, because they, they realized, recognized immediately what an incredible cheese it is. Yeah. Um, now it's very common to have U.S. cheeses in Paris. It's not, I mean, not uncommon, but that was the first one that broke down the barrier to get U.S. cheeses accepted in, in uh, France. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit, Mark, because... Uh, it, with wine, same thing. It took it took somebody, whether it was a Robert Mondavi or somebody, to break through, you know, to France and have them take us seriously with wines. And the same thing with cheese. I mean, they take their cheese really seriously in France, and <laughs> everywhere else, and possibly and more probably, so than their wine. <laughs> yeah, and they and they probably look down on us for a long time of yes. like you, know, you just kind of make American cheese. Uh, right. And suddenly we are now serious cheese players too. So how did that happen? Um, well, it the. the the way I like to think of it uh, is um, the late 60s and early 70s, we threw off the yoke of homogenization of our palates. Um, after World War II, the, the, the trend was to have everything the same nationwide. Restaurants would have the same food nationwide. You know, everything would be uniform across the country. And they basically did away with most regional specialty stuff. And in the 60s and 70s, people started moving to uh, upstate California and uh, Vermont and places like that and doing little artisan uh, foods again. Um, also, in, in the wine industry, um, the grape growers in California knew that they were growing premium grapes, but nobody was turning them into premium wine. In the 50s, the grapes became very high quality. In the 60s, the grape growers started getting good winemakers like the Crudes and those people. And by the 70s, we were ready for the Judgment of Paris, which is the event that put California on the map in, in uh, France. Right. And I think it was, it's been immortalized in, uh, in one of those films. Was it Uncorked or some, some film? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, um, the Judgment of Paris, I think it's called. Um, is it? Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, the, we, we just had that same similar moment with cheese at Bra in Italy last year, uh, year before last, really? where the first time America brought a large number of cheeses to the international competition, the biggest cheese competition in the world, and we dominated. We took first place. We just kicked ass. Interesting. In almost every category that we entered, our cheeses did exceptionally well. And, now and that was nobody knew. We have cheese regions now. I mean, I know that you 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 work with California. Obviously, California has a great cheese industry going, uh, both mm -hmm. uh, sort of high level and and sort of generics. And yep. then we've got Wisconsin, which is again, yep. I think we think of Wisconsin maybe first when it comes to a cheese in America. But then there's Vermont, the biggest cheese producer. And then there's upstate New York, and mm -hmm. there's places that are that have distinctive styles. What is it that differentiates the the quality of cheeses from there, and and you know the flavors that come out of those regions? Well, before we go any further, let's let's say that 50 years ago, California was a big milk producer. Wisconsin was a big milk and mostly cheese producer. Wisconsin has more pe more cows than people, so they don't drink a lot of milk. <laughs> California's got a lot of people, so a lot of our milk just gets consumed as milk. I see. Um, 
So about half of the cheese, half of the milk in California goes into cheese. About 90% of it in Wisconsin goes into cheese. So they still make more cheese. We make way more milk. So they California and Wisconsin better. are the two, two big dogs. But there's not a state in America now that does not have licensed cheesemaker. We're making cheese in all 50 states. There's handmade artisan cheeses coming. Uh, Tennessee, Georgia are becoming some of the hot spots in the south. Uh, the um, here, right now, North Carolina Farms is stunning. Um, in uh, in uh, Georgia, they're doing amazing stuff. Really? Tennessee has got a ton of folks. Yeah. Uh, North Carolina, Virginia, they're all starting to be big areas. So, so it's, it's anywhere where you can produce milk, you can produce cheese. It. And, and isn't cheese a kind of a better value proposition too for the for the the producers that the, yes. you can sell milk cheap, but cheese it improve the value goes up of the milk. But well, there's a lot of milk to make a little bit of cheese. It's a value added product. And one of the first things that I did with the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board um, was was really talk to a lot of the small dairy farmers in Wisconsin. Where when I first started working for them, their average dairy herd size was still under fifty. Um, California's is over 400. Wow. The economy of scale was killing them. Um, and, and when I first started working in 91 with the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board, there was, we, our spiel said, we're sponsored by the 36,000 dairy farm families. When I quit working for them in 2003, it was the 16,000 dairy farm families. Yeah, uh, interesting. So it had been, you know, there was a lot of them going by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. What I tried to do was get the, get the ones that were, serious about staying in business to understand that they're not going to make money selling milk. You've got to sell a value added product, whether yeah, it's yeah. yogurt, butter, cream, uh, you know, whipped cream, uh, cheese, anything you do that adds value to that milk, you make the, the next level of profit as well. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned it because when I, uh, we mentioned Redwood Hill uh, goat cheese and they started out as a goat milk dairy. Uh, right. They were right close to my restaurant and bakery in Forest right. And so I was friends with them. And all of a sudden, one day, they, they started bringing in first yogurt. Then all of a sudden, they were bringing in some little little uh, uh, chev-like cheeses. Yep. And I said, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we realized we can't make any money in goat milk. Uh, but but by by transforming it into cheese, uh, you know, it becomes much more valuable. And then they and did the same thing that Laura Chanel did. They studied it and I went all in. And let me let me guess. The person that came and talked to you was a little short woman, a young woman about that tall, named Shauna Davis. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah. And then there was a husband and wife team that right. sort of started it, and uh, they were they're just terrific, wonderful people. And yep. it was and it was kind of cool to be there to see this change. The the light went off, and they realized that they were sitting on something really valuable, but it had to be transformed into something else to make it valuable. The Bice family was their name. Bice. Jennifer Bice. Yeah, Jennifer was the, the Jennifer chief. Jennifer and Steve. And Steve, yeah. And um, that they, uh, uh, and I, I, when I mentioned I went mushroom hunting a day or two ago, Shauna Davis was with me. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Yeah. So those so are, yeah. We've been friends forever. And it seems like just yesterday, but really that was about 30 some years ago when, when that whole movement happened. And right about 30, right about yeah. 32. Yeah. 30, like Eight, 89. Yeah. And right. so- so that happened in the goat cheese sector, but and, but of course you represent all the different sectors. And today, uh, in, in in the next part of our you know of our little session today, we're going to do some tasting, and you're going to hopefully be able to be our our cheese yodi. You know, you're going to be the guy that that's going to teach us everything we need to know, but one section at a time, because now we got to categorize this. And and so we've been talking about goat cheese and all these other cheeses, and eventually. I want to explore every aspect of cheese with you that we can, because this is a great opportunity for us. But uh, just so that we can get drill a little deeper today and before we run out of time in this session, I'd love to be able to talk a little bit about the, the different the categories of cheese and then focus on one of them. So what, okay. what are the sort of main categories? Uh, well, it, it, it all... Uh, cow's milk. milk. We'll say cow's milk cheese. Cow's milk. Well, and number one, I love all cheeses. I, I promote cow's milk because they're the ones with money. They're paying <laughs> um, the bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, but, but I love all cheeses and, and I particularly love little handmade cheeses from whoever makes them. They're all excellent. 
Um, do, but do we, I know that there's goat cheese, you know, uh, is there, is there a big industry in this country for sheep's milk cheese for yet? Much smaller. <laughs> uh, sheep's milk is much smaller because uh, there are just like in goats, there's different goats. Some are better for meat. Some are better for milk. They produce more in sheep. It's the same thing. Some are for wool. Some are for meat. Some are for uh, milking. We got mad cow disease into our food supply through dairy sheep being fed bad cow stuff and that ended up getting in our food supply. So when that happened, America said no dairy sheep in America. The only four or five ex exceptions were for Michael Jackson uh, at Neverland and he promised not to milk them. Wow. <laughs> so in America, who knows what else he did with them, but he didn't milk them. <laughs> all the sheep that we, all the sheep's milk that we have in America comes from sheep that are really designed to give wool. So their volume of milk is very low. It's good, but it's very low volume. And so sheep's milks tend to be very expensive in America. Yeah. And of course, uh, obviously cows can produce a lot of milk, which makes them the ideal source for, for, you know, the predominant cheeses. So let's talk a little bit more about those before before we run out of time on this segment. So I want to give us plenty of time for the tasting. I've got five cheese here that I want to taste with you. But Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about that. You asked about the families. Let me tell you, when, when you talk about cheese, there's thousands of them in the world. How do you make sense of it? How do you decide how to break them up? You can go by country of origin. doesn't tell you anything about the cheese. You can say cow, sheep, goat. It'll tell you what the milk is, but not whether it's a hard cheese, soft cheese, where yeah. it melts. So what we've done, most people uh, break it up by degree of hardness. Mm -hmm. How hard, how much moisture, how much butterfat the cheese has. Starting with fresh cheeses like... Um, fresh mozzarella or uh, uh, mostly things like cottage cheese, uh, creme fraiche, um, uh, cream cheese, um, you know, all those cheeses that are super high moisture, ricotta. Yeah, um, and those are the called soft, fresh cheeses. Then we go down from there into things like the, the ripened cheeses, the breeze and such, then out into the blues, then into the semi-soft. And we go down in getting harder and harder until you end up with grating cheeses down at the bottom. Mm. And each of those categories will have similar characteristics as far as how they're made and how they cook. Yeah. Um, and that's mainly what we're interested in as chefs is how does it perform in a kitchen? Um, you know, we need to know the flavor, but if it doesn't melt and you need a melting cheese, it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. And so how, and so how does milk, this one ingredient, creates so many different variations. Oh, and, and what it, I mean, it's, it's something pretty magical. I think the cheese making, I was a cheese maker actually before I was a bread maker. Really? Um, I had a small little cheese thing going in, in Forestville. I was uh -huh. making a little, just a, a little Jack style cheese that, 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 that but I, I didn't go into it as a business because the regulations oh. and the, there was so much more stringent yes. than bread making, but right. the idea was, and I think why I was fascinated with both of those cheese and bread and, and of course wine is that it was all about this fermentation and transforming ingredients from one thing into something else. That and, is, that is what fascinated me about it from the get go. Yeah. I am fascinated by fermentation. Yes, exactly. In every way, shape and form. I make my own kimchi. I make my own pickled vegetables. I, um, I mean, I, I have roasted, I've picked, dried, and roasted my own coffees, including the fermentation in the skins. I, I am just a fanatic for learning about fermentation. I make okay. charcuteries because who knew that meat could be fermented? That's right. That's right. You know? yeah. yeah, we did a whole show with Sandor Katz, and oh. you know, he took us through, again, a small slice of the fermentation world. But yes, the fermentation is the big umbrella over all of these things, and I think this this foods that fall under the fermentation umbrella are the most fascinating foods in the world because they represent transformation. And they are, they are the best guesses I've read. They make up about a third of the calories consumed by humans. There you go. That's yeah. saying something. It is. Well, and of course, bread is a big part of that, uh, that calorie consumption too. So uh, bread, so cheese, wine, beer, coffee, chocolate, tea, you know, and yeah, pretty much everything. Uh, yep. Now, in, in the on the border between Sonoma County and Marin County, there's a yep. little cheese company called the Marin French. Marin French. They make what they they will label brie 
and mm -hmm. camembert. And basically it's the same cheese. It's just a different label on it because it looks like the brie cheese from France and it looks like the camembert cheese from France. So is it, is that cheese identical to the cheese that comes out of those regions of France, the way that Burgundy and, and, uh, you know, the, you know, the concept of terroir, yeah. the flavor of place. Yeah. Okay. The difference between brie and camembert in France is where it's made and what, what breed of cow is used. The make is all the same. If you're in by Paris in the Ile de France region, uh -huh. way away from the coast, you have brie. Brie is a milder cheese. It never gets stinky and nasty as much as camembert does. Interesting. Camembert is by the coast, and the, the ocean breezes cr uh, create different uh, flora for the cows to eat. Uh -huh. So they pick up different things in their diet, produces different milk, which produces a different cheese. Plus, there are two different breeds of cow. One likes the ocean, one does not. And so, so those, those two different qualities of milk produce the different characteristics of camembert and brie. So the cheese that's made in, in, in Petaluma there at that, at that factory is closer to the coast. It must be more of a camembert in quality, but what about the cows? So is the milk similar to what they use in camembert or is it more similar Depending to what upon they use which part of the herd, Which part of the herd he's using? Yes, it can be very much like it. Um, and I would say that um, both of those cheeses, camembert and brie, uh, a lot of their flavor depends on how they're aged, how long, what conditions they're aged in. Um, and so the same thing with the Marin French. Uh, they used to make two different versions, one called uh, the their, their perfect little brie, eight-ounce brie's. Yep. Anything that didn't fit into that eight ounce, if it came out a little too big, it went in yellow buck camembert, which was their uh, way to order, not their exact weight size. Uh -huh. And those I found ripened up really nicely. They, um, and they were, they were wonderful cheeses. I've taken the tour there many times. And, uh, and, and again, unappreciated in America because we think brie, we think French, but really those cheeses can be made here. So Again, well, what category does that cheese fall in, and how does it compare to what we're going to Next category down would be called uh, a past fre soft fresh is soft ripened, cheeses that get soft as they ripen. The, the mold ripened cheeses like brie and camembert are the most common. And the ripening is a result of, 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 of what, microbiology, of bacteria, of... Of, uh, uh, of chemistry. It's uh, biology and chemistry. Um, what's, what primarily what's happening is as the mold grows, that white mold, it's a penicillin-style mold. Uh -huh. uh, and what it does is it pulls calcium out of the body of the milk of the cheese to form that rind. Uh -huh. And that pulling out of the calcium makes the cheese end up being softer. It breaks down the, the bonds and, and allows the cheese to soften as it ripens. And, and it that's really one of the reasons you, you want to eat the rind on those cheeses because almost all of the, the calcium is in the rind. Um, and, it, and it tastes good too. I mean, if you get past the idea that you're eating mold and you just yeah. think of it as calcium, I like that because right. I can tell people it's just calcium. It's uh, mostly calcium. Yeah, it's white mold and calcium. And the white mold is uh, in the, in the, the category. Um, they just change the name as they do in microbiology all the time. Used to be called penicillin candidum. They decided it's not technically in the penicillin, it's geotrichum candidum now but basically the same mold. And um, it is, there are three different white molds that are similar, but produce slightly different slight different characteristics. Uh -huh. And every manufacturer will make his own choice of how much and of what of each one to do. Some make more cakey rind, very thick, chewy uh -huh. rind. Some produce a very thin rind that just barely covers the cheese. Um, so they, the rind, the molds, create different rinds and different flavors um, within the cheese. Is that a different uh, mold than used in blue cheese then, or is it similar? It is. It's, uh, they originally were both considered in the penicillin family, um, but now they've taken the white ones out into geotrichum, and the blues are still considered in the penicillin family. But they are all, they're all in the same. Um, most of them were bread molds originally. Uh, the ones that we use in cheese were bread molds. Right. Um, and that's how they started. Uh, if you think about ancient history, uh, if you were a cheesemaker and you had caves in the mountains nearby, in the hills, you would make your cheeses, haul them up the, in the hills, and shove them in the back of a cave to keep them cold. That's where they stored cheeses in the ancient days, was in caves in the mountains. And, and if, if you had a good cave where it had good ventilation, uh, they wouldn't mold, and they would ripen nicely, and they'd stay cold. You could keep them for a, a year or two or five. Um, but 
caves were cool and nice. And <laughs> if you were out in the sun in the middle of the summer and you're keeping your, sh your sheep in line, you're a shepherd and you're eating your lunch, you're going to go sit in the mouth of the cave to eat lunch. Yeah. Get out of the sun. Well, you're going to eat your bread and you're going to throw the crust of the bread in the cave. Guess what grows in caves? Mold. Mold go. grows on the bread. Mold grows on the wall. Mold grows on the cheese. So these things Blue are all—they're all symbiotic with each other. And then one leads to the other. Yep. Well, well, we're going to go. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to—we're uh, going to do some tasting. And what category are we going to taste in the next segment? Well, I figured since we're pizza people, we'll start with the one that is by far the topping for pizza, uh, and that is the pasta filata category. Pasta filata means uh, spun paste or spun curd, and it refers to the make procedure. We'll talk all about all the different mozzarellas, provolone, yeah. and uh, things to use for pizza. Beautiful. We're going to be back with Mark Todd, the cheese dude, in the part two. We're going to do some tasting in the pasta filata category uh, because we're going to, you know, obviously this is pizza talk. we got to start with pizza. But then hopefully, Mark, we can get you back from, for future episodes. We'll talk about cheeses in other categories as well because it's, it's a fathomless subject, as, you, as you, we already can see. And we can drill down deeper into microbiology in another episode. But for now, let's go to tasting. So we'll see you back in a second in part two of of our of our first sort of cheese yodi with the cheese dude, uh, Mark Todd. We'll be right back with more Pizza Quest right after this break. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere in the United States. But that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach Cave Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Welcome to Pizza Talk. I'm Peter Reinhardt, and I'm back with Mark Todd, the cheese dude. This is part two of a conversation that we started uh, uh, talking about cheese in general and sort of the, the connection between cheese and bread and wine and, and anything that gets fermented and transformed. And in this session today, we're going to actually focus on one category of cheese because Mark gave us a little bit of a, 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 the big picture of categories. Uh, and we're going to focus on the, the category that's most probably uh, important to those of us in the pizza world. And that is called what? Pasta falata. Is that the correct way of saying it? That's it. You got it. So Mark, uh, I'm going to let you take it from here. What is pasta falata? Can you, uh, for those who didn't see part one, uh, what does it refer to? Why does it have that name? It's not pasta. Uh, right. but why do they call it that? Well, the, the, the word, the, the phrase pasta filata translates roughly to spun paste or spun curd. Pasta yeah. is paste. Um, and what it refers to is the make procedure of this cheese. Hmm. Uh, most cheeses, you put milk in a vat, you do some things to make it separate the solid from the liquid. Uh, it looks like tofu floating on, on liquid. Um, and what's floating is the fat and the protein. Most uh -huh. of what's on the bottom is water and sugar. Uh -huh. And so that's whey. Um, once you cut those curds up to get more whey out, most cheeses then either cook it in the way they cook uh -huh. the curds in that way, or sometimes they'll drain the way out and let them sit in uh -huh. pasta filata. They take those curds out of the warm water, maybe 120 Fahrenheit and put it into very hot water, about 170 or 175. Wow. And that starts to melt the curds. And then they stretch the curd uh -huh. and fold it and stretch it 
and fold it and stretch it and fold it over and over and over. Like making taffy almost. It's it's the exact process for making taffy. That is the picture I use when I show people how it's done. Is a taffy pulling machine. Wow. And that's and what, what happens. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just, as you're saying it, I'm, th- I'm imagining these guys I see making fresh uh, mozzarella. Right. That's the pulling part. The making of it was in the vat. You made the curds. That's the cheese. Now what you're doing is changing the shape and the form that it's in. And that's what pulling fresh mozzarella is. Anytime you see a restaurant that says homemade mozzarella, that's bull crap. What they're doing is buying frozen curd, heating it up, and then stretching it on site. So really, it's it's home stretched mozzarella, but it's not. That's home. what it is. So, but what is it that caused the curds to separate from the whey? I, I understand there's different ways that you can cause that to happen. There's three primary ways. Uh, the original method was uh, the rennet from the animal's stomach. If you think about milk, what it is the fluid that feeds baby animals, baby mammals. Once the fluid goes in, your body has to say, "Oh, that's solids. That's liquids. One goes down one side. One goes down the other." That's what happens in your stomach when you drink milk. Uh-huh. The protein and the fat goes down one intestine. The liquid goes down the other intestine. Wow. And that's the separation of curd and whey. Originally, it probably happened by someone putting milk into a boda bag, the stomach of a goat. Oh, yeah. They tied off with liquid. Yeah. You, you put milk in it. You put it on your saddle horn of your camel and ride across the desert. And at lunch, you now have curds and whey. That's it's right. not milk anymore. And that's probably how it happened. So it's, so, um, so cheese starts as curds and separation of curds and whey. And then and in, in some cases, the, the rennet itself, if you're using rennet, that has obviously some either enzymes or, or it um, is like an organisms. Enzyme. Enzymes. Maybe, it is right? an enzyme. Rennet is an enzyme. But you can also make cheese by adding like vinegar or lemon juice to milk. That, right? is, that is the other original method of making it. And that is called direct set where you just add an acid to milk and it causes an immediate separation uh, under heat. The, the difference between these two is expressed on the microscopic level uh-huh. in how the cheese is held together. With direct set, you basically rip the outsides off of the proteins in it and then they just kind of hang out together uh-huh. by friction, more or less. In the rennet, the, the longer method, the one with the, stu- the lining, the enzyme yeah. from the stomach, it changes the the um, the electromagnetic uh, stat- uh, status of those molecules, and they stick together by el- 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 static electricity. Basically, those cheeses can stretch and come back. Direct set cheeses snap. Uh, well, a friend of mine, Paula Lambert, who you might know, who has a company yes. in Dallas called the Mozzarella Company, she she prided sure. herself on the fact that she used uh, the enzyme, the rennet method of mozzarella. She considered it a hot, much yep. higher quality of mozzarella. Is the mozzarella that we see, for instance, the, the little mozzarella balls that I have here in front of me, are these made from a rennet method or an acid? Yes. Method? No, they're, they're, they're all rennet methods. It's all rennet. The, okay. the, the difference is whether or not they are pulled and stretched. Ah. In in small handmade artisan products, it's still pulled and stretched either by machine or by hand. And that is how they make a pasta filata. What we call pizza cheese, that is made in what is, most all of them are made in what's called a, a block set. Just like you make a cheddar in a block. It, it's never pulled and stretched. Pulled. Those cheeses are the ones that are going to show up to your uh, your location, typically frozen. Mm-hmm. especially overseas they're always frozen uh-huh. um and that is the only cheese you'll ever see that freezes properly and mm-hmm. it's designed to do that um those cheeses that are that are block set once they're thawed you have about three weeks to use them or half of the stretch is gone interesting so it's like like a lot of things the uh uh, time is a factor, but uh, I'm thinking of the, the analogy of bread making. If you're kneading bread and you're yep. doing that sort of agitation, that's like folding the cheese. Right. And you're developing that that gluten in bread. In this case, you're developing the proteins, where the gluten's a protein. So and a when, lot you, when you do that pulling and stretching method, you're going to see that in spades when we pull this first little cheese up. Uh, your little fresh mozzarella ball, 
Yeah. You have a little fresh mozzarella ball? That one right here. What size do you got? I've got these little, uh, this is like the size of a golf ball. Let me see. Looks just like yours. That's that's a, let me hold it up. That looks like uh, well, they, uh, a bocconcini. A boca, yeah, a bocconcini. Bocconcini. That's about the size of an egg. Uh, this one is a ciliagine. It's about the size of a cherry. Ah. But now take that and just peel it open. Pull it apart. Look how it striates. Yeah, I see these striations. Yeah. Just like a chicken breast, right? Yeah, exactly. That is from the pulling and stretching. That is the pasta filata. That's what this makes already it. been folded and stretched before they formed it into the balls. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that's that's what creates the stringiness of pizza cheese. And and now, it's been sitting in in liquid. Is that the way, the natural way that it came from, or is it um, typically no? It's water. Uh, it's it's done water. with clean water, and the, it'll pull some of the the whey out of the cheese to uh -huh. cloudy up the water. But it's typically uh -huh. done with fresh water. Um, so this so this is this cheese is what we would call fresh or fior de latte or fresh Correct. cow's milk mozzarella. Uh, cow's milk. It, yeah, it's the same processed when they make it from buffalo water buffalo milk. Then right. It's uh, if you make it from water buffalo milk, you can call it mozzarella in Italy. If you yeah. make it from cow's milk, it's fior de latte. Okay. And, and this one and, technically is fior de latte. Americans, and, we just call it all fresh mozzarella. And it's just for and it's just simple curds and whey that's yeah. been stretched and folded. And, and a little bit of salt, very, a little bit a of little salt, salt. Yep. not much, but, but very mild. No, mm. no real fermentation involved in this, right? Or development it of flavor. It does, but it hasn't had a chance to develop the flavor yet. That happens later. If we were to hold on to this and let it ferment, does it? Do we do we gain or, or lose if we don't use it in fresh? Soup? No. Let me tell you, fresh mozzarella is the very best within about four hours of being made. That's when you want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, this, I mean, if you, meant if you, to be eaten fresh. If you can get it, especially the, the water buffalo milk, if you can get it warm still from the make, it's like flan. The texture is more like a flan. A flan. Almost custardish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six hours, seven hours in, it's cheese. And it becomes oh. more elastic. I see. And then and then does so but this cheese is not what eventually becomes uh low moisture mozzarella, no. a different process. No. No, no, no. This cheese eventually becomes eaten quickly or thrown away. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to be eaten the day it's made, and the next day, make some more. Does it just get sour, or what happens to it? It becomes, it becomes uh, increasingly sour. Um, it will eventually get bitter, uh, and then uh, it becomes really unedible. Useless. Uh, but that takes weeks and months, man, before it gets that bad. Okay. So um, you know, there's a window of time that you have that you don't have to use it within four hours. You can have no, a few no, days. No. Yeah, okay. I, 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 most of them now have a two month or so shelf on them, um, and that's two months unopened. That's the one you got to remember. Anytime you open these, as soon as you open it, you got about five days. Get it and done. The clock starts ticking. Yep. So, uh, so its primary function on a pizza is it goes on fresh. And it kind of like, it's got a lot of moisture, way more moisture than other cheeses. So it leaves a little puddle of cheese, so to speak, a little rubbery puddle of cheese. Um, but it's really, it's not about complex layers of flavor in that mozzarella. No. It's really about no, no. the freshness of it. It's about the simple freshness and expression of the milk. It's the That's all it's about. It's like the pure essence of milk. Yep. Yeah. That's and, what it's supposed to be, concentrated milk, basically. Yeah, and it is, and it's really good. It's just, I mean, it's satisfying, and it's it's like yep. it's like it's like oh, you feel like you're you're getting it right from the breast. You know? Yes, yes, it does. It it has that incredible fresh feeling. Now, if you're going to use these cheeses in pizza, yeah. um, what I always recommend is pull them out the night before uh, and layer them. You know, put them in a lined bowl with some sort of uh, uh, you know sterile paper towels or paper, uh -huh. you know clean to to pull moisture out overnight. So that when you slice them and put them on your pizza, you don't end up with pink sauce. Um, I see. And that is very common. Uh, uh, a lot of people now, a lot of manufacturers are, are producing it in a log shape. Yes. So that you can dry it out and dry the whole thing and then slice it in. You can get it really cold, almost freezing, but yeah. not frozen and okay. put it on a slicer and slice it really thin. And then, and then, uh, and then uh, you won't give as much, won't put as much water or melt, uh, liquid right. into pizza itself and so, that was the that was the one that originally came on pizzas uh i mean way back in, in the 1800s when uh, um 
the margarita pizza was yeah. the first, you know, international star. Um, this, you know, the story behind that, the we, queen margarita and all that. Well, we hear, we hear the legendary stories. We don't know how much yeah. of it is real, but yeah. Uh, no, it is, it is, it is quite real. Uh, the new, uh, king and queen of the section of, of Italy that included Naples. It wasn't the whole country now, but it was a big chunk of it. Yeah. And, uh, they went on their trip to see their new country. And when they went to Naples, all the, the chefs made their best pies and this one won and it won because it was the color of the flag, you know, right. their new flag. Yeah. Yeah. Red, yeah. White and green. And, and of course, and a great combination of flavors, the tomatoes, yes. the cheese and the, and the, the, the crust underneath it. Well, so the basil, perfect don't forget that basil, man, you know, the basil is the big part of it, but the, not just for color, but for flavor. Right. Well, and so, if you think of pizza, uh, every flatbread in the world is poor people's food originally, whether yeah. it's non tortilla, uh, pita, you know, all these things are poor people's food, flatbread, right. you cooked on a hot rock and you put things on it to make it taste less like flatbread. And in, in Italy, they had this the, one guy next door had a water buffalo that he used to plow his field and they milked her and she would give milk every once in a while and they'd have some cheese. And uh, there, there was this new thing coming over from the new world that none of the rich people would eat because they thought it was poisonous called the tomato. tomato yeah. So the poor yeah. people had all they wanted of those. None of the rich people wanted it. And they would go into the hills and pick whatever wild herbs were available, like basil and oregano. And guess what went on pizza? The cheapest crap they could get to make the bread not taste boring. And in its simplicity, that, yep. that, that bread with tomato, cheese, and basil, it's it's a classic. It's a works. And, and everything else after that is just embellishment. And, you know, a lot of people think that it's, it's an Italian invention. Uh, not even close, man. It goes way back. It goes at least as back as far as, as Egypt, because it, there's uh, descriptions of, of making things that are virtually pizzas uh, listed on, on, yep. uh, in hieroglyphics. Well, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to an Egyptian, then they invented it. If you talk to a Greek, they invented it. Of course. If you talk to somebody from India, they invented it. But right. what, we, what we do know is, is that pizza exists worldwide under different yep. names. Uh, yep. But the margarita basically, you know, gave it that that center stage. It became the right. diva of pizzas, which and leads us to other cheeses. So right. then later so now, on, got these low here, moisture versions of mozzarella. Here we go. Here we go. Um, World War II. All our GIs are over in Europe and, and Asia. The ones in Europe, the first country we liberated in Europe was Italy. So guys were in Italy for years before we sent, brought them home. Yeah, They were getting used to eating this food in Italy. They came back to America in 1945 and said, what's this crap? Yeah. The food over here is way better, man. Yeah. And they said, well, okay, what is it? Manufacturers in America, what is it? Tell us. Oh, well, they make this stuff called pizza. Okay, what is it? Well, it's flat bread. Yeah, no problem. We got that. Um, and it has some tomato stuff on it. No problem. We got to, yeah, we can do that. And um, then it has this cheese on the top that's made from water buffalo milk, and it only lasts a day. <laughs> uh -oh. Yeah, we can't do that. Yeah. Uh, hold, hold on. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. <laughs> oh, low moisture mozzarella. Moisture. Something like, like similar to, but different from the, not, the bush mozzarella. Not even close, actually. <laughs> I'm not holding two pieces of, of, of what we call low moisture mozzarella. One is full fat made from whole milk and yep. one is skim milk. Right. And this is really right. where I first heard about you was you were, uh, I read an article where you explained why you should use one or, or a combination of the two to get the best. The now, best one thing I'm going to show you, this, this commercially made low moisture mozzarella, I don't know if you can see, can you see the striation? I'm looking at yours and I don't, I'm looking at mine and I can see a little bit of striation, but not much. Yeah. There's some, yeah. It's like threads. So this is actually spun. This is actually turned. It's spun. So it's still filata. This is still technically a pasta filata. So it's spun. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now this one, same manufacturer and it's strung too. So both of my low moistures are traditionally made. Galvani is a company and, uh, and they're the, like the, the part skim first. World, Do the part skim first. Okay. Pick it up. Squeeze it between your fingers. I'm doing it. Hard as you can squeeze. Try to get all the way through it. Okay. It's, it's Look at your fingers. There. Look at your finger and see how much cheese is left between it. Very, 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 very thin layer. Just a, but just almost like a, like a, a film almost. Yeah. Right. Now taste it. Smell yeah. it. 
Yeah. No taste at all. Tastes like library paste with salt on it. Yeah, yeah, but and, and still satisfying in its own right, but not not something you would write home this about. Is, this is not table cheese. It's not designed to be eaten this way. It has no function as a cold product. Now try the whole milk version. Squeeze it between your fingers. You oh. can't get nearly as thin as, as on this one, can you? No, no, it's, it's more it fast. It breaks apart. Yeah, the, uh, it's just just oil at the end. Just oils left on my finger. Now taste this one. Huh. Mm. This has a little milky flavor to it. A little richer, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to make a pizza and you decide that you're going to try it with these mozzarellas and you bring both of these in and cut them side by side, yeah. guess which one you're going to pick? I'm going to pick the full fat for taste. Damn right. And guess what's happening on your pizza? It's the fat separating and it's been giving you an oily. Uh, it oils off like a like like a, a Detroit parking lot, and yeah. you end up with nothing but goo and no browning. Uh, and no browning—that's the key right there. Browning is protein. Oiling is fat. Uh -huh. So when you change the ratio of fat and protein in part skim whole milk, one browns better and doesn't flow as much. One flows really well, doesn't brown as much. Most people have a combination of those two. About 75 or 80% part skim to get more browning and it's cheaper. And at 20% or 25% of the whole milk to make sure you cover the whole pizza yeah. and give it a little extra stringiness. So the, the low fat will not spread and, and, and blanket the pizza in the same way, but it will Correct. give you that beautiful caramelization as a result of the proteins. Maillard right. reaction. The Maillard reaction. Yeah. Okay. Right. Proteins and sugars together. Yeah. And uh, I, I did some research on that. It's a, uh, I, I always, because lactose goes mostly away in the whey, the lactose part of the milk sugar. Uh -huh. uh, but there's a secondary milk sugar called galactose, galactose that does not metabolize out. And that's what creates that Maillard reaction. Interesting. Browning. So, so are you saying that, that a lot of pizzerias and maybe the bigger chains who have resources are creating a blend of a low, of a low fat and a full fat uh, version of this cheese? Or they're just buying them straight from their manufacturer, their their distributor. Uh, in California, there's yeah. a, a big distributor, Pacific Cheese. They probably have 20 different blends available. So you um, can buy it already pre-blended. Exactly. And, and, and if you want to order enough, 80% 80, 80 low low fat and 20% full fat. That's all you need. You know, it can be it can be as low as 50-50 if you want a really runny pizza, if you want wow. blonde and lots of goo. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you go 100% part skim, you end up with a brown pizza and lots of little spots where you can see the sauce. But if you, okay, so now we're talking about sort of a flat pizza like Neapolitan stuff. But if you're doing a pan pizza like a Detroit style where everything stays in the pan, then maybe you can get away with a more of a fatty cheese, something well, like Again, it's, it's how much oiling off do you want? How much browning do you want? Uh -huh. When I'm putting that on, in, in particularly for Detroit, when I'm lining the outside edge of that one to get that yeah. extra brownie, that's yeah. going to be where I got my part skim mozzarella. Yeah, for the edge, for that, right. for that frico. Yeah. Well, so we've got these two mozzarellas, but then there's other cheeses that fall in this pasta yeah. filata category, like like provolone. Right? Is provolone right. one of those? Okay, yeah. so I've got a couple, two kinds of provolones here. Yep. Uh, no, we've just we, we've just tasted whole milk mozzarella. Go straight yeah. into the go straight to the mild provolone now. Mild, okay, I've got a mild provolone and I've got an aged provolone. Yeah, we'll start with a mild, definitely. I'm mild, okay. Um, okay, now, smell this one. Mm, it definitely smells, it has a lot more aroma than the mozzarella. Yep. Yeah. Squeeze on it and you'll see that it's about the same as that whole milk mozzarella as far as fat content. How yeah. much? You, how much you can squeeze on it. Yeah, yeah, it's all, and yeah, it feels... It feels a lot like that, although it's crumbling a little bit. But a little yeah. bit. Now put it in your mouth and let it, and just chew and let it start to melt into your palate. Mm. I love provolone. Mm-hmm. You notice that there's a flavor that is not in the mozzarella. Yeah. And it's an, almost an astringent flavor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Comes from a an enzyme called lipase. Um. Is that's that one of the things that, that, that the cheesemakers add to the to the milk, or is it already it, in the milk? It's part of the. Uh, they usually add it when they're adding the starter cultures. Is they oh, add yeah. lipase. I'm my mouth up, I can feel uh, uh, 
the aromasticity is turning into flavor, you know? Yes. Yes. And if it gets, if it's, uh, as you're going to find out when we move on this one that you just have the mild yeah. is probably between three and six months age. Okay. Yep. Now the one you've got sharp, what, who made it? Uh, this one is a boar's head and it's, uh, it's aged over five months. That's Bel Joyoso, uh, from Wisconsin. Uh, I believe they make the boar's head for that. For I um, believe that's who makes that one. Yeah. Uh, it could be, it could be parked or Kasari or uh, Bel Joyoso. And their five month is a, that's considered the light end of aged. Smell that one, break it open. You can see the striation. It's a, I see this, the lines are like, like lining up like, like little soldiers. And yep. the aroma is like twice as pungent as the, as the younger provolone. Maybe more than that, depending on yeah. how old it is. It's like you want to blow your head back. Yep. Yeah. Now chew on this one. First of all, it's, it's shattering more in my mouth. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't have that stringiness. Right. It's drier. Mm. It's more, it, 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 it it's more uh, fracturable, mm -hmm. fractile. Um, but it delivers a ton of flavor, man. Uh, amazing amount of flavor. My mouth is just filling up with flavor. That one, that one is five months old. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Now we're getting into into this, now the aging factor hits. This one? Yeah, I'm looking at, at, at the cheese you're holding up. It looks like almost like a Parmesan almost. This is a provolone that I actually received as a wedding gift from my Italian father-in-law. It was a two-year-old provolone in 1989. Oh, my God. This is the same piece? That's it. That's what's left gotta, of it. Is, is it vacuum-packed now? Is that how yes, you're I keep it vacuumed all the time. Oh, my gosh. This cheese is 30, 34 years old this year. Does it does it does it keep changing flavor wise? Have yep. you cut into it since? You know how much how much more intense the five month is than the than the three month? Yeah. Imagine thirty five years. So it's it's like so is it is it like wine that it sort of hits a sort of a peak and then after that it's it can't hold that peak or is it different or cheeses it getting better and better? Different cheeses react differently. That's why I age cheese for fun to see what happens. Wow. I had Gouda's back 25 years. I have cheddars going back 30 years. Um, and sometimes they get bad and you throw them out. And sometimes yeah. they get better. And sometimes they get weird. And then later they get good again. Um, so, Well, it's a living thing, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. And I do not recommend doing that for anyone else. <laughs> I take my chances. You know, these, these things are out of code, you know, out of safety code by three decades and change. So that's why uh, you're the dude. That's why you're the cheese dude, because you do yeah. this kind of stuff. I mean, you're the same guy who's going out in the woods after this and picking wild mushrooms, too. <laughs> that's so, it. So, yeah. So and, and there's a lot of people who are watching who, who are cut from the same gym, so to speak. You know, we're, <laughs> we're kindred spirits. That's why we're part of this Pizza yeah. Quest community is that we, we're driven by these same passions. Um, well, I can, anybody that wants to do aging at home, I'll tell you the two keys, moisture and size. Don't, don't do low, low moisture cheeses. They go bad very quickly. Uh -huh. So the drier it is, the longer it'll last. And uh -huh. the bigger the piece is when you start, the longer it will age. Because Yeah, but it will keep getting smaller because you're going to get not just, you're going to get evaporation among other things going on there. Which is which is why we have wax on cheese. The, the the Dutch got tired of selling cheese and weighing it in Amsterdam, and then when it got overseas in a boat, it didn't weigh as much as it did when it left, and people were pissed because it was opening to the air and it evaporated off. So moisture went away. So they figured out dipping it in, in uh, beeswax to, to hold the moisture inside. That's interesting. So that's uh, so it's very functional, not yes. just decorative. So uh, I got one more cheese first to talk about, but before we do, I got to ask this, or I'll forget to ask it. Uh, I keep a lot of times I assume that Fontina and Provolone are very similar, but Fontina is not a pasta filata. It doesn't fall no. into this category. Is Correct. it because it's not spun? Is that what why it's That's not it. a pasta it's, it's a different make procedure, it's a different aging procedure, and it's a different starter culture altogether. Every, everything so, about it is different. So the only yet, it looks similar, it kind of melts similar, it's but it's a totally light. different cheese. It's Part light. Light. you know, it's yellow. You know how many cheeses that describes? <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. It looks similar. Well, yeah. yeah right. In other words, oh, yeah. it melts. Let's see. That's cheese. down to about a thousand cheeses or so. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. 
but it's not pasta filata. And oh. so provolone and fontina are different categories of cheese. Very. Maybe the next time we, we, we do this, and hopefully you can come back soon because I'm getting pretty jazzed about this. Okay. We can look at, an, at another category. We'll talk sure. about it another time and we'll line up some more cheeses in a different category and talk about the similarities and differences from pasta filata. But yeah. I do have one more here for you to, to help me understand better. This okay. has become sort of the hot darling of things is the burrata. Burrata, no. Cheese. It's a, it kind of seems like a, two cheeses in one. Before you eat it, do you have anything around? Bread, anything? I've got some crackers here. Just have a cracker then. Have a cracker and a little drink of water because you've gone from the most intense cheese back to the one one of the ones. I forgot you had that. I don't have it. So I forgot. I would have had you taste it early. Um, so oh, I would eat crackers in between each, each cheese just to clear my palate. That's a very good thing to do. Although I, I the, the order that I guided you in, each cheese as we went was going to obliterate the flavor from the one before. So it's not as critical. And now we're um, going back. So now um, when you have that fresh mozzarella and you're squeezing it out to make the little shapes, you know, yeah. bocconcini, ciliegini. Well, if you take that and stretch it and make a cup out of it, hold it uh -huh. in your hand in it with a cup, uh -huh. fill that up with some of the, the mozzarella curd mixed with cream uh -huh. And then you take the top and just gather it like a bundle and twist it around. Like a little purse. Make a like little purse. a purse. You've made burrata. Burrata. Uh -huh. And burrata, so the inside is some of the same, basically it's the same ingredients, just in a different stage. It's, it's more it's before it's been spun and, and pulled and, and folded. It's it's the same curd before it's spun, folded, and, cur and twisted with heavy cream added. So it's almost like a... Not quite a creme fraiche, not quite a mascarpone, but it's its own thing. Just cream. It's in fact, um, uh, what's the name? It has it has a specific name. Stracciatella. Uh, uh, Stracciatella. Oh, Stracciatella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that that is the um, the the term for that cream and ricotta or cream and mixed uh, mozzarella some some manufacturers can use will use ricotta and cream some uh, will use ricotta and mascarpone it's there's no you can hard and fast rule but but the, but the whole concept is is it's basically a purse made out of fresh mozzarella filled with something creamier than the than the skin exactly and then you get this explosion of flavor and and textures and 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 your mouth just falls in love when, with it when when people when i do what um uh classes on pairing pairing beverages and cheese uh -huh. condiments and cheese uh you know nuts snacks and cheese um i always tell people you know oh with this one you need this and this and this try this and when i get to burrata i say with burrata uh get a spoon uh -huh. that, that's the only thing needed man you don't need yeah. olive oil you don't need black pepper you don't need anything just yeah, yeah. ah ah well, I'll tell you, a lot of people have been putting burrata on top of a pizza. It's sort of like when it comes out of the oven, it's just sort of like it's like the bonus. It's like the big yes. reward. But but yeah, you're right. It's it's so good. But I mean, and as we're talking, I'm just biting into this little purse. Yeah. And it's just it's just pleasure in your mouth and it and uh, that joy of the fresh milk and you feel like you're you're getting the essence of milk. You know. Absolutely. And that that is one of the things that makes. Uh, both the fresh mozzarella and particularly uh, the burrata, such an amazing um, delivery device for the flavor of milk. It, it delivers it more than almost any cheese on the planet, other than maybe um, like ricotta uh, is pretty close. Well, Mark, this has been phenomenal. It's like a masterclass on just one type of cheese. I can't wait to do them all with you. Um, if people want to tap into your knowledge how what is there can they write to you do you, do you have a way to or if they want to hire you if they're in if they're looking to kind of up their own cheese game uh can as their way to, to do sure. a website do you have an email i'm, or, I, I'm the cheese dude at aol.com that's how long dude. i've been doing this it doesn't the get all it one word the cheese dude at aol.com yes i have <laughs> gmail yes i have yahoo yes i have all those but you know what 20 million people have the cheese dude at AOL. So I'm going to stick with that. Cheese dude at AOL.com. And um, have you ever done a cheese tasting for Jeff Bridges? You guys. Uh, you... I have not. I have not. <laughs> he's uh, got to know about you. Though. He's, he's the other dude. Right? Yeah. So, there's, there's a Clark Wolf is one of my neighbors here. You know, he's, he's another one of the, you know, food writers. And uh, this area is pretty much thick with food people. Um, 
Because if you if you live where you want to and travel for your job, you can live anywhere. And I got to say, who wouldn't want to live here? You know, there's another guy who lives near you. I, I hope he's still alive. I haven't seen him in a long time. And he's a garlic expert. Oh, uh, do you know who I'm, who I'm thinking? Yes. What's his um, name? And he wrote the book on the, the book of garlic. And I've seen I've seen him at uh, a couple of events locally here. Yeah, I, I do know who you're talking about. Chester Aaron's. Chester That's Aaron's. It. That's Chester. Chester, started, Chester was a regular customer of, at, at my restaurant in, in Forestville. Uh, and that's how I learned about it. And he was at that time was writing children's books and, oh, okay. scripts for, and movies, books that got turned into children's movies. And then he got fascinated with growing garlic in Occidental. Right. At his little, at his little ranch. And, um, and, he, and he started writing books about garlic. I mean, that area where you live in the, along the Russian River area in West County, Sonoma yep. County, it's just, it's just so... Well, it's fertile soil for foodies. I was going to say, um, uh, one of the greatest food um, botanists in history, um, Luther Burbank. Yes. He moved here from the Midwest where it was cold and nasty. And he looked all over the world and he said, where's the greatest place in the world? And he picked Sebastopol. That's right. And, he, and, his, and the Luther Burbank house was one block from where my bakery was in okay. Santa Rosa. So we nice. used to walk on the grounds there all the time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was, uh, and I had no idea when I moved to Sonoma County that I was stepping into this amazing oh, place, it is, and I got lucky, you know. A whirlwind of food. I look forward to our next meeting, Peter. Uh, we'll talk Mark. about some more stuff. Um, Thank you all know. for joining us uh, with uh, Mark Todd, the cheese dude. Uh, we're going to try to get him back as often as possible, but keep coming back to Pizza Talk because we've got all sorts of cool people uh, coming in, in. We're now in season two of Pizza Talk. Mark, we'll see you again, and thanks so much for all your knowledge and for your passion. Love it, Peter. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.